this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. This webinar is the last segment of the TSRA and Atricare webinar series titled The Origin and Current Practices of the Heart Team. Um, it is our pleasure to join you tonight for what will be a lively, engaging, and timely discussion. First, I would like to extend our heartfelt thanks to Atricare for this grant um, that made tonight's session possible. And second, I would like to introduce your moderators for tonight, starting with myself. I'm Chi Chi Do Nguyen, and I'm a current um, PGY3 I6 CT surgery resident at University of Michigan, and I'm also the current TSRA Education Committee Chair for this upcoming year. And joining me is Dr. Hiraji. Hi, everyone. I'm Samir Hiraji. I'm one of the uh, cardiac uh, surgery fellows at the Brigham. I was in the 4 plus 3 programs. I'm in my second year of my 4 plus 3. I'm also currently the second year uh, treasurer for the TSRA. So I would like to extend my warm welcome to everyone, all the panelists and everyone who's here uh, tonight. So at first I'll start with introductions. So I have uh, Dr. Michael Mack, he's very familiar. Everyone's very familiar with Dr. Mack. So he's the chair of the cardiovascular service line at Baylor Scott and White Health in Dallas. He's a co-principal investigator of the partner trial of Tower versus surgery, and also has been the former president of the SDS. So we are very happy to have Dr. Mack here. Uh, we also have Dr. De La Cruz, who unfortunately is unable to attend. Uh, he's the chief of uh, aortic surgery at the Brigham Women's Hospital, and he's currently in the operating room. So he extends his regrets for not being able to make it. And I have the honor of introducing um, our final two panelists for tonight's discussion. So Dr. Isaac George joins us from Columbia University Medical Center, where he serves as the surgical director of the uh, Structural Heart and Valve Center. He is also one of the few physicians in the world that is trained in both cardiac surgery and interventional cardiology. And then also Dr. Sarah Pereira joins us from the University of Utah, where she serves as the surgical director of the structural heart program there, and is also program director of both the integrated and traditional thoracic surgery uh, programs. So thank you to all the panelists for joining us today. Um, before we turn our attention to the panelists, I would like to give a little bit of background on the heart team and what we were going to discuss for uh, tonight's panel. So multidisciplinary teams are driven by a need to bring together multiple specialists for an individualized treatment plan. Um, and in CD uh, medicine specifically, we've used this uh, first in trials comparing uh, myocardial revascularization and then subsequent studies evaluating TAVR. So official clinical endorsement um, was later issued in 2014 by the European Society of Cardiology and Cardiothoracic Surgery, and that put forth a class 1C uh, recommendation to use the multidisciplinary um, heart approach. So over the last decade, this has expanded to a variety of CV disciplines, but um, since this approach has been more extensively used with the heart valve teams, that will be our focus tonight, and our hope is that this discussion will lend to future ones in the different subspecialties of CV disease. So without further ado, I'll let Samira take the lead with some questions. Sure, so the first question I have for the panel, especially for people not familiar with the heart team is who makes up the multidisciplinary heart team at your institution and what are their corresponding roles? Uh, 
do you feel like there is quite diversity in the team that makes up the hard team? And if so, how so? Maybe Dr. George first. Yeah, sure. So, you know, the heart team, I think, um, just to first of all, give credit where credit is due. I think, you know, the the folks who are really in the, the trenches of TAVR early on, and I, I think Dr. Mack is obviously one of the key leaders in this, um, really uh, did a, a good thing. I think this was probably at the time, at the height of the, the cabbage PCI wars. And I think the, um, the reaction to that was to say, how can we do this better? And maybe it wasn't, maybe it was just totally unintentional and the FDA forced them to do this, but someone did a good job of saying, look, let's make sure that we have um, parties who are interested and involved in the care of patients with aortic stenosis and create a, a model where all of these patients get evaluated and treated jointly. Um, and so with that, I think the, the early TAVR trials really set a precedent for ensuring a level of knowledge, a level of quality, a level of equality, let's say, um, and parity among all of these centers. So you have people that, that all have a stake in the game that join together. That includes, you know, a lot more people than you would think. Originally, just from, let's say, a paper uh, of, of TAVR, you would think that everyone needs to be seen by a surgeon and a cardiologist, and that's it. But it's really evolved into so many more people. That includes the key advances in outside of technology for TAVR has really been in imaging. So our imagers, whether it's CT or ECHO, have been critical. Um, we have our, our coordinators, and those are people that, you know, screen for trials. We have our NPs, PAs that are on the ground kind of really doing a lot of the legwork, seeing the patients, doing a lot of the clinical follow-up. Um, we have our general cardiologists. We have our, our actual teams who are taking care of patients as trainees, um, anesthesia, cardiac anesthesia. And again, all of those people really are people at the table when we have our structural heart team meetings. So I, I think those are our key people. So of course, like the, uh, there's substantial variation in what uh, comprises of a heart team at multiple institutions. Uh, so Dr. Pereira, like how was it easy to adopt towards a heart team approach at your institution from your experience then? And sort of what some of the uh, positive things that you've experienced or gained from that, as far as patient care or outcomes, if there's any anecdotes. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on the panel. It's um, it it I don't deserve to be here next to these icons of Mac and George. So I would say that at Utah, you know, we have a fairly small heart team. If you were to compare us to a Columbia or New York or Texas, you know. Um, but I think in the academic environment, what is the nicest about having an academic team is just collaboration with um, your colleagues. And so just the collaboration between the interventional cardiologists and the surgeons, we have six physicians on our heart team. So three interventional cardiologists, three surgeons, that doesn't include our structural cardiologists, um, you know, imagers um, and other coordinators. Um, but I think what's the nicest is that when these patients come in, they're very high-risk patients. And so particularly with the mitral patients, I think we have really lively discussions about what's best for those patients and, you know, considering devices, open surgery, you know, 
Um, and the nicest thing is that our opinions aren't always um, in concordance. We often disagree on what's best for these patients, but I think the best aspect of the heart team is that we can talk about it and then give the patient the option of which way they want to go um, with their care. So Dr. Mack, I know that uh, the heart team approach was initially sort of adopted during the partner trials or at least you know started from there. Could you provide us with some historical context of you know what made uh, the team sort of decide on it and sort of how it some of the challenges you guys faced initially as you guys adopted towards the hard team approach? Sure, absolutely. And, <clears throat> you know, I get asked, when I get asked questions like this, it reminds me of what stage of my career I'm at. I used to be an expert in innovation. Now I'm an expert in history. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it kind of, it, it's sobering to a degree, but I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, so the heart team actually predated the, the um, structural heart trials in valvular heart disease. It all started with the syntax trial, uh, which was cabbage versus PCI. And I, Isaac is absolutely correct. This was all a product of the uh, uh, cardiology, cardiac surgery wars uh, about cabbage versus PCI. So there was a trial that was put together called the Syntax trial, uh, which took patients with left main and three vessel disease and randomized them to cabbage or PCI. What that did was it forced us to have to work together, us being cardiac surgeons and interventional cardiologists, because you had to both look together and say, yes, I can, this patient is a good, uh, cabbage candidate, and yes, this patient is a good candidate for PCI. What we and it 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 highlighted some of the early issues with getting a heart team together, and that's the logistics of how you get everybody at the same place at the same time. And and as as Isaac and and Sarah said, our heart team is real. It's not virtual, and it's not a checkbox. But it's it, you have to work at it to be able to keep it that way and make it work. I mean, everybody has to be inconvenienced um, so that the patient is at the center of it and 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 shared decision making and heart team approach is made. At any rate, I I used to have to scrub out a surgery uh, out of and, and go over the cath lab and, and look at a patient on the table and look at their cath films and said yes. This is a cabbage candidate. And similarly, the interventional cardiologist would come to the OR and interrupt me in the middle of an operation. But that's what drove us together, uh, is this having to work together to decide whether patients would, uh, would were candidates to enroll uh, in this trial. And pretty soon what we found is uh, we would always say, yes, the patient could be treated by both approaches. And then we'd say, but boy, I sure hope it gets randomized to the other approach. Uh, I don't want to do a cabbage on this patient because it's got such horrible distal vessels. And then the cardiologist would pretty soon say, what was I thinking when I said I could do this and put eight stents in it? So it, it, it all served to calibrate uh, a realistic expectations of, of the team members. But then it segued on to the, the partner trial. Uh, and 
I, to this day, don't know who named the partner trial. I think it was somebody within Edwards, um, but it was prescient uh, that that name was put together for these trials because it, it did kind of say, say, it did say it all in, in terms of working together. And, you know, from there, you know, I think, you know, Columbia and and Baylor are virtually the same. We've worked together, you know, on these trials for 15 years now. At 16 years, 2007 is when we started all this. Uh, and, and we're virtually mirror images of each other, how we do things. Speaking about um, the partner trials, with all of the, like the evolution of what type of like patients uh, can have TAVRs, how has the role of like the multidisciplinary heart team evolved? You know, one is we, we see all patients together. Uh, and, you know, right now as TAVRs evolved, you know, the lines are pretty well demarcated. I mean, they're, you know, an 80 year old that's got any degree of comorbidities you know, is going to be TAVR. And similarly, somebody in their 50s is going to be a SAVR. I, I think the biggest discussions that happen now are, are patients that are under 65 that want TAVR. Um, and, and that age is creeping down and it's patient preference. And of course, you have to, you know, um, what the patient wants is priority. But where you think it's the wrong decision. Maybe it's a bulky, eccentrically calcified aortic valve, um, you know, or there's a dilated ascending aorta with it. And, and the patient really wants a TAVR and the whole heart team knows that surgery is the right answer or feels strongly surgery is the right answer. That's the crux of the TAVR discussions right now in my experience. I don't know what Sarah and Isaac think. I think the patients that are young that are coming in demanding TAVR are the toughest patients, um, particularly now with all the discussion of ROS versus, you know, root enlargement. I mean, we have patients that we look at each other in our conference and we say, are we willing to give this 50-year-old bicuspid with an ascending of 5.2 centimeters? Are we willing to give them a TAVR? And we all look at each other and we say no, you know. And so I think I worry about these patients in the community because the patients that are really demanding these operations and wanting these operations are going somewhere else and getting TAVRs um, because they don't want open surgery. And those are the patients that I worry about that haven't been you know, educated the most about durability and what comes next. And so, you know, I think in the academic environment, it's easy for all of us to say we still have heart teams and our heart teams are really valuable um, for our patients and our institutions. But I do worry about the future of some of the smaller community heart teams and the application of who they're going to offer TAVR versus SAVR with the low risk. Yeah, these are all great points. I think one of the things to remember is that structural heart has just truly become commoditized at this point, right? This is something that you can go to the corner store and get everywhere and probably do a pretty good job of, you know. I think the reality is that TAVR has not become so challenging and um, you can get good results from average level and even 
lower volume operators. It used to be that there were these big discrepancies between mitral valve repair or a dissection repair or something like that. And I think those differences have really become nominal. You know, you really have to find deep metrics to figure out if there's a, a large quality difference between these programs. And there are, but they're not probably as striking as we think. Um, and so we, we do have this free market economy with medicine at this point, especially in the United States, where patients have their autonomy based on their own financial freedoms to make those decisions if it's offered. And um, the regulatory pathway that we have has offered it. And so this is the situation in the world that we live in. We can't go back and reverse whatever approval has been provided by the FDA, independent of whatever inclusion and exclusion trials, this is what's out there and this is, this is there. In some ways it's increased access of care. I'm sure there are a lot of people that are being treated now that were never treated before. And the implication of surgeons only doing, you know, ABRs and not having their ABR patients being seen by a structural heart team is one of the thorny questions that always comes up, you know, should all the AVRs be seen by TAVR teams? Um, what do you do with TAVRs that, uh, you know, aortic stenosis patients that, that aren't close to an aortic valve surgical center, but are close to a TAVR center? Um, so there are a lot of inequalities that we have to face, you know, in medicine. And in some ways, access to care has been improved by these kind of minimally invasive techniques. There's no question that, on the other hand, this concept of shared decision-making is, is really thorny, where patients, because you have this ability to go from place to place and pick and choose in a free market kind of world, they can go. And it's medically you know, provided under whatever laws and allowances that we have. And patients are you know, trying to make those decisions. We have to help guide them. Um, but I think to some extent, the cat is out of the bag. And our line at our institution is probably a little more flexible than others. We say, look, is this medically safe? Are we going to hurt someone by doing this? And it's not medically safe or unsafe based on kind of a 10-year or beyond outcome. It's really the short-term outcomes that we're trying to get through. We don't want to hurt someone in, in the short term. The implications of long-term consequences those are things that we, if we feel that we've educated someone and they're educatable, um, then we will go ahead. And so if a 55-year-old, you know, absolutely says, I want to have TAVR, you know, they're a bicuspid and they have terrible anatomy, we'll say no, right? That's medically unsafe, we will hurt them. But if they have great anatomy for a TAVR and they're 55-year-old and they have what we think are valid reasons for going forward and we think they're, you know, um, autonomously valid, then maybe that's okay. I'm not saying that that's right or wrong, but, um, but I don't, we don't necessarily limit care or access to care based on those kind of decisions um, if patients want. And so at your respective institutions right now, how do you go about um, getting patients evaluated and having a team approach to educate not only the other uh, partners in your team, but also to your patients to let them know what the best treatment plan is. I mean, I, again, I'll answer that. So we, we get all of the data that we need to, whether it's the angiographic data, the anatomic data from CTs, we all sit as a group and review everything and we try to come to a consensus. 
there's unfortunately no one formula to make a decision on any of these things. And as Sarah very correctly alludes to, that we sometimes argue. Maybe I push back and say, well, this this person has a very small valve and they should never get this, you know, and they should get this. And so we'll argue about that back and forth. You know, ultimately, again, patients have the right for decision for their own bodies and um, they will make their own decisions. And so we, again, offer guidance for those decisions and we offer medical therapies that we think are reasonable to offer. And ultimately, the patients decide. Yeah, we have a multidisciplinary clinic um, separated now for aortic and mitral. Uh, and we have one cardiologist and one surgeon at each clinic. We rotate clinics along with our coordinators and see patients together. I, I should add that I think the liveliest discussions these days come for valve and valve patients. Um, you know, particularly because patients are referred in for valve and valve from um, outside providers, and they don't always realize all the technical implications of valve to coronary heights and durability and, you know, putting valve and valve in a 21 millimeter, you know, mosaic or trifecta. Um, and I think the liveliest discussions for our team right now come from the valve and valve patients. And I'd be interested to hear from Dr. Mack and Dr. George kind of how they, you know, deal with a 40-year-old valve and valve consult that comes in with short coronary heights and, you know, what the recommendations are. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, that is a, a patient gets sent in expecting to get a valve and valve and they've got a, a, a 19 or 21 surgical valve in and, you know, uh, clearly the coronaries are going to be obstructed and, you know, uh, trying to talk that patient who comes in thinking they're going to get a valve and valve into a redo saver, uh, especially if they just had the saver done, you know, four years ago with a trifecta valve, um, you know, is is a major uphill slog. Um, but you you know you do the best you can from that standpoint. Now there's you know multiple ways of improve uh, of treating less than optimal patients from from fracking to you know to um, uh, basilica type procedures to be able to uh, accommodate less than optimal patients but still um, you know those are difficult patients to deal with um, we do the same thing as as Isaac does is that we review every, we when patients are seen their whole workup is done. We we have separate aortic and mitral clinics like you do, Sarah. It's actually mitral tricuspid, our mitral tricuspid clinic. We see about 13 to 15 patients in an afternoon in each of those clinics. And they've got a full workup done in the morning before uh, we actually see them. So we have all the information at hand. And we discuss all the patients together before going into the room to see them. And then, uh, and that includes uh, surgeon, structural interventionalist, imager, mid-level providers, research coordinators. Uh, and first, we decide are they candidates for any trials. Uh, that's that's our first, you know, level of, of decision making. Uh, and then we go in the room and talk to the patient together. Um, and what you find that does is 
it, it keeps everybody a little more honest. You don't oversell what you do as a surgeon or as a cardiologist. And what you also find is the patient has absolutely no clue as to who the surgeon and who the cardiologist is. Uh, and, and it shouldn't matter. And it really doesn't in that environment. So that's part of the very positive culture that's created by all this. And, and you know, as, as both Sarah and Isaac have said, you know, TAVR has become commoditized and less contentious and, and the decisions are more straightforward when you get to the mitral and tricuspid and then you even go into thoracic aortic and hokum and things like that. That's where, you know, the decision-making from the early days of TAVR now goes forward into those areas. So the heart team on one hand has really helped streamline at least decision-making, uh, prioritize patients who are more complex. Uh, people have published data to show that it actually has increased volumes at other centers because you're seeing more patients as a group and appropriately referring them. But you guys also mentioned that your heart team involves physical meetings. You guys physically go, you know, once a week, twice a week. So how does the individuals are reimbursed in that context? Like who, how, how do you get reimbursement for your time? I think the cardiologists, surgeons, mid-levels, everybody's on different compensation models, but we, uh, you know, we're salaried university employees here in my space. So, I mean, we don't get additional compensation at our facility that I know of. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think everyone's a little bit different. Um, if you're asking what, how you manage the time, you know, the time commitment for structural heart is that you see patients, you'll have to interpret data, and then you'll have to do procedures and then take care of patients afterwards. And different people do different parts of that. You get one bill, you know, you bill one bill, the hospital gets a certain bill, and the physicians get a certain bill. The two physicians that get the largest bills, and they're not even that big, let me just tell you, uh, are the surgeons and the cardiologists for the procedure. The imager gets this minute amount of, you know, like you could go buy coffee with how much they, they actually like get paid to do their their work. It's it's absurd. Um, and then everyone else doesn't get any money. They just get a large part of the pie on a global scale from the DRG that comes in that supports the hospital and then gets funneled back to whatever valve center. So we don't get compensated for that time. We put in bills, you know, the hospital bills for the um, the preoperative clinic visit. And actually for post-op, you can also bill both on the surgical and cardiology side for the post-op visit. It's usually one or two visits as an inpatient. So those are the things that bill in addition to the testing that's done. Outside of that, there's no billing. It's There's no inherent value associated with the time that you see a patient in clinic per se, other than the bill that you put in. In the same way that it's no different than if you see a surgical patient in pre-op. Yeah, and I would just, you know, second both of those. Uh, when you see a patient for evaluation, only one care provider can bill for that. And, and those RVUs, we usually let go to the cardiologist. The surgeon works for free from that standpoint. But the, the way we encourage all our surgeons to go to clinic is 
this is the major referral source you have for surgical cases. So you want to be there, even though you aren't being compensated for it. The, the second part is that we do have directorships uh, that in structural heart and, and over the clinics that helps subsidize the salary for work that doesn't generate RVUs. And then the third that's in for procedures, um, you know, the reimbursement is still the way CMS set it up originally. Uh, and that's, you can bill 125% uh, and it's split two ways. So 62 and a half goes to a surgeon and the cardiologist for each of those procedures. But the ones that are really left high and dry that are crucial are the structural imaging folks. Um, and especially, um, especially when you need an interventional uh, imager in a procedure, like you do, uh, you know, uh, now anesthesiologists are, are good enough for most havers, uh, but a lot of the sophisticated imaging, you, you need a dedicated imager and they get paid nothing. So we actually uh, have our hospitals subsidize the imagers to be able to keep them around, keep them happy, and keep them working. And, and we subsidize them to a, a to a significant amount because they are so critical to this. So one of the things along those lines when you said about the DRGs, I know that in 20, uh, 2017 or 18, Medicare changed their national coverage determination to decrease volume requirements for like TAVR. But there was also discussions about either potentially getting rid of the heart team or keeping the heart team, but then it, it sustained throughout. Do you feel like this would be something that would be continued to happen, even though I don't know how this landscape changes as far as reimbursements? Funny is CMS loves the heart team. They, they think they feel and probably appropriately so that um, it helps keep um, healthcare um, somewhat controlled. Um, so they are very positive on it. Um, I think the um, there has been a push by some to have an NCD reopened. Uh, and one of the issues is going to be changing the volumes, uh, changing the need for a heart team, et cetera. It's not going to happen. Uh, uh, CMS is not going to reopen the NCD and the heart team's not going to go away uh, uh, from Tavern. Um, how do you expect training to um, best incorporate um, residents into the heart team and learn these endovascular skills? You know, it's a great question. Uh, um recently opened American Board of Thoracic Surgery cardiac track is now um, requiring 20 TAVRs. Uh, I think it's five transeptal procedures. So for residents and fellows now on the cardiac tracks, they definitely need to have more dedicated time in the structural rooms um, to get their numbers. And that's a big major shift um, in the last six months in our training. Um, so I think, you know, our residents rotate through vascular, um, the integrated residents have several months of cath lab, they have structural months, and I think you'll probably see that expanding at programs around the country, um, particularly for residents on the cardiac tracks. You know, this is, uh, 
this is such a, a tough question. This is such a loaded question that, you know, I feel like I've dealt with for 10 years. Um, this is this is not easy and this is hard. And I've, I've had varying viewpoints on how to train residents. We have a lot of residents that want to operate. And as someone mentioned, you know, if there's a cabbage or a valve or an aortic case, they're going to go do that. And so uh, we're a busy program. And so very commonly, we won't have residents in our transcatheter valve rooms, you know, whether it's TAVR, CLIPS, tricuspids, whatever it may be, it's all our cardiology structural fellows. And, you know, they're very well trained. They're all functionally attendings. They've all done interventional years. And um, it's, it's always been a little hard for the surgical residents to get really integrated um, into the training aspect and the cases. And so they've had such a great job market. They come out and make a million dollars, you know, in their first year. And so for them, they're going to come out and they want to do cases and do a lot and be busy. And they want to operate. They're surgeons. They want to operate. And they haven't been as interested in tavern. So how do you get someone who's maybe not so interested, interested? So you can provide all the tools, but ultimately people have to kind of want to drink the water, right? Um, and if they don't drink the water, they don't drink the water and you can't really force them. We have rotations and we try to get people involved and we try to get people to do stuff. Um, and we've had people that really buy in and do a lot and they get a great experience out of it. And then we have some people that just are not interested. And I don't get mad. I used to think, oh, everyone has to know Tavern. Everyone has to do this, this, and this, and this. And I've totally changed my mind. Um, you know, not everyone has to be able to cannulate coronaries or do PCI or, or you know, do complex stuff. I think every surgeon and every heart team is going to be different, and everyone's going to have to have a role that they fill. And it took me a long time to kind of figure that out. And every resident's going to have to figure out exactly how deep and how interested they want to be in the structural part. I would like to think that TAVR, because now it's so prevalent, has to be part of our um, our knowledge base for a cardiac surgeon, an adult cardiac surgeon. But I think um, but that may be up for debate. And as long as they can fulfill their role in a valve team to make themselves valuable, that's probably good enough. What what I can add to it is, so I am currently the vice chair of the American Board of Thoracic Surgery and will be the chair next year. And there's probably nothing we struggled more with than this issue. And, you know, it's impossible to get it right. And we know we haven't got it right. And it's dynamic and, and constantly evolving. Uh, you know, as Sarah said, we did change the requirements about six months ago uh, and and have a purely cardiac track right now. What we do within, you know, I originally thought years ago that, you know, um, having a, um, every program have an Isaac George in it was the ideal uh, a solution to how structural heart disease uh, could be treated. Uh, but um, Isaac is a unicorn to a degree. And there's some other unicorns out there, Gaurav Alawadi, Rob Smith, et cetera, uh, Yoshi Kaneko. Um, but it, it's hard to scale that beyond individuals. And 
So what we do in our program and, and, the, and other programs do also is we have structural heart fellows. And every year we train one cardiologist and one surgeon dedicated to structural heart that after they complete their residency. But what that further does is it dilutes the experience for the cardiac surgery residents in training. And as Isaac says, some of them don't care and aren't interested and they're doing the minimal to satisfy the board requirements so that they can say, you know, they've scrubbed on 20 tabbers, but they don't have wire skills. They don't want to get wire skills. And then the whole team doesn't want to teach them because of their attitude. So it, it is very, very difficult uh, and will continue to evolve um, uh, based upon what the current experience of this current paradigm is. And as the structural heart field continues to grow with mitral tricuspid and, and, and other um, surgery and interventions. I would say too, just for the residents on the call, having spent 10 years in private practice in my career, you know, I think if you're really desiring to do a more community or smaller town private practice program, I think all of those programs are opening TAVR programs these days. And so it really suits you to get your experience in your training instead of, you know, you're not going to be the one doing a one-year extra structural fellowship if your goal is to be, you know, a community CT surgeon. And so I think um, to keep that in mind, it's a good idea for you to try to get as much wire experience and structural experience as you can, because that's a lot of the future of our specialty. And with the discussions that we, we've had, it's very evident that um, a multidisciplinary approach is very beneficial for our patients. But are there any disease um, scenarios that you think wouldn't benefit from a multidisciplinary approach? So we've continued to expand the original concept. So, um, we, like Sarah, have separate aortic clinics and separate mitral and tricuspid clinics. Uh, we also have a high-risk coronary revascularization service in patient uh, so that anybody that has an STS risk greater than five or an ejection fraction of less than 30% that's planning on surgery has to be seen by the multidisciplinary team. Similarly, any high-risk PCI, CTOs or um, uh, cardiogenic shock uh, uh, needs to be seen by the multidisciplinary coronary team. Uh, we have a thoracic aortic clinic that we do uh, cardiac surgeons and vascular surgeons together. Um, we have a multidisciplinary atrial fibrillation clinic that um, anybody that's a candidate for surgical ablation or has had surgical ablation or has post-operative atrial fibrillation is seen in that multidisciplinary clinic. Um, and, and then the latest is, is a cardiomyopathy clinic uh, that's focused on, on hokum and restrictive cardiomyopathies like sarcoid and amyloid. Uh, and that's staff multidisciplinary. So uh, it, it is a, a concept that we very much have embraced and have scaled to other diseases. I think that's great. I'd also add, we recently, about a year ago, started a multidisciplinary endocarditis team 
you know, and it's really great to have the social workers and the addiction folks on there and, you know, really helps with patient follow-up. So, I mean, to me, I think the more collaborators, the better. It expands all of our knowledge and it really helps with patient care and follow-up. So that's, that is a great thought, and we haven't done that yet, but we're considering it, especially now that you can use some of the um, um, uh, pulmonary embolus extraction devices for tricuspid endocarditis. Uh, it is going to be emerging multidisciplinary team. You know, one other thing that I'll add, which took, also took me some time to kind of understand and figure out, and this was a lot of structural heart was kind of watching, you know, I watched a lot, you know, especially here when we were first starting out, big sheets and you have all these big names in the room. And so you don't do a lot. And there are still procedures that are specialty procedures. And this is kind of true in life where you don't get to do much. And there's only so many cases. There's a small number of cases. Maybe that's true of your edge to edge experience or new devices or person names or whatever it may be. But there's still a huge amount of value in watching. And structural heart is not like you're not doing like I would say brain surgery, but I'm I don't know if that's the right, I don't know if that's the right call either. But maybe it's mitral valve repair or maybe a David or maybe a, a total arch or something extraordinarily complex and very complicated from a technical standpoint. These are complex and technically difficult in a different way. Um, and I think the subtleties that you pick up just by watching are underappreciated in structural heart. So I think you have to go into the field if you want to go into the field, understanding that you're going to watch a lot. And you have to start integrating all these feeds of information, whether it's Floro, Echo, um, watching people do small movements. And, and then you'll find that when you watch 100 or 500 of, of these cases, you'll come in and you'll be able to do these very easily. But there are a lot of cases that are maybe billed or kind of set up so that one operator does a lot of them. And if you're not that operator, you may be out of luck and you may have to move to another institution to get that experience. But that doesn't mean that you can't still learn from those procedures. Are there any challenges that you foresee as far as your multidisciplinary team approach so far? I know everyone's expanding, but do you foresee some challenges in the near future or long term? from these approaches? I mean, I'll just mention and I'll let uh, uh, Sarah and Mike, you know, comment. And that's that everyone wants to do these small specialty things. Even if they've never heard of it, they all want to be the operators. And I think managing everyone's expectations um, in the group who all want to do the same thing. No one wants to do tavern. Everyone wants to do edge to edge CMVR and TTVR. And so that's the, the challenge. We always worry about retention of our team members, right? And so I think there's always a lot of movement in academic surgery. And if you lose team member A to a different institution, then your team's really going to change. And so, you know, we're always trying to stress to our administrators how important our team is. And um, and that's, I think, a big future threat. You know, I'd say our biggest tension is the logistics uh, of con you continuously have to work to make it work. Um, it, you know, uh, you know, an operation runs over and you aren't making it to clinic on time, um, you know, or there's a STEMI in the emergency room and the interventionalist is on call and can't come to clinic and who else can cover. I, I mean, there's always 
the easy default route is to just let one specialty or the other kind of see it based upon who's busy or who's not busy. But maintaining that culture is critical and you have to work at it. And everybody has to be inconvenienced a little bit to make it work. Um, but the logistics of being able to get everybody there and there on time is, is the biggest um, tension. So to end off with our last question too, um, for disciplines that are now um, incorporating the heart team approach into it, um, what is your biggest uh, piece of advice that you can give these subspecialties in moving forward? In my career, I've just really learned to love the multidisciplinary approach because I learned so much. And it's not always apparent, you know, during valve clinic or during a procedure what you learn. But I think what you learn between structural and open surgery in terms of anatomy and different approaches and different ways of thinking is just it's so instrumental to open surgery. And so I would say, you know, really listen to your colleagues and trust everybody's opinion on the team. Um, because, you know, there, I'll sit in a big complex third reop mitral case trying to figure out what to do to this valve. And, you know, I'll think of something I learned in a mitral clip procedure and kind of apply it to that case. And so, I don't know, I, I think that the multidisciplinary approach is definitely here to stay in cardiac surgery. And, as we subspecialize and subspecialize, um, there's just a lot of learning to be done from all of our colleagues. Um, I think the, the the group approach is wonderful. You you learn from your your colleagues, as Sarah mentioned. You become friends, you know. And I think the best way to be part of a team is to really be friends. It's hard to be a good team if you're not friends. You know, I think we um, as a group here we have a a number of people that are kind of all similar interests you know, um, you know, ages and, you know, uh, whatever it may be. So we all get along. We all do social things together and we're all just very good friends. And so it's very easy to disagree and not be upset with people in that sense. You know, if you're always trying to create conflict and, you know, you're not friends with people, then, then it becomes uh, just a challenging work scenario. So I think it's been really good for us because we're all friends and we create a team based on that dynamic because we really want our team to be a team and it's not based on our professional qualities or whatever it's based on those personal qualities right it's always you know putting it's not you can't put like you know all the superstars in a room and expect them to work you want the right team and I think that's very much true of, of this as well um and then you know I think you you will do things differently in surgery you get really, really good by doing things over and over again and perfecting it. And I think structural is actually different. It changes the way you do things because you're thinking, how can I do this better? Not can I just move my hands better or do this same thing over and over better? You think, well, how do I not do this, but do something else that's better? And you always keep thinking that. Even when you go back to your, let's say, AVRs or mitrals or aortic cases, you think, gosh, why am I doing it this way? And you know, why can't they develop something to do something else, right? So so I don't have to close the chest, right? Or whatever it may be. I think you think of different things um, in a different way. What, you know, what I would add to this is, you know, we're, we all um, adhere to the scientific method and make decisions based upon evidence. 
Uh, we're an evidence-based specialty. Um, and the heart team, it's hard to generate evidence to say, to demonstrate clearly that there's better patient care because of it. I mean, it's kind of like motherhood and apple pie. Who can be against the heart team? You know, <laughs> uh, it, it, it sounds good. It's kumbaya. Everybody's, you know, uh, loves working together, but does it really translate into better patient care? And try to design the clinical trial that will generate the evidence to say that heart team trial is better. It, it, it's impossible to do. Um, probably the closest that you can come is that uh, Sammy Elmaria, uh, who was at MGH and now is at um, UCSF, um, and Karen Sapolka, who's at MGH, um, uh, did a randomized trial of a shared decision-making tool. Um, uh, patients came to clinic and got it uh, or didn't. And they showed, they demonstrated the patient satisfaction from the clinic experience was much better uh, by this heart team shared decision-making approach. But other than patient satisfaction, it's hard to demonstrate that um, that there is uh, evidence that a heart team does better care. Now, they also have gone on now and just last month have been funded a huge PCORI grant, I think $7 million, to be able to uh, try to demonstrate that the heart team approach is better, scaling off this initial trial that they did at MGH. So hopefully some evidence will come that this truly is better patient care, but it's everybody feels like it's the right thing, but being able to point to a p-value that says patient care is better this way, it's pretty hard. Uh, I just want to thank you, all the panelists, uh, for sharing their time and their wisdom with us tonight. Um, this is definitely the future of treating CV disease, and will be interesting to see the difference of specialties um, incorporating this approach.